Thank you for downloading this podcast on digital mindfulness. I'm Lawrence Sampofo, and this is episode number 16. Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm Lawrence Ampofo. Digital Mindfulness explores the intersection between the digital and optimal human life by sharing with you insights from educators, TEDsters, technologists, journalists, philosophers, psychologists, neurologists and many, many more. In order to help improve digital life for organisations and individuals, we've also created a range of courses developed in tandem with industry and academic experts on a range of topics from finding your digital voice to cultivating attention in the digital age. This week my guest is Dr Larry Rosen. Larry is a research psychologist and educator who specialises in multitasking, parenting, child and adolescent development, social networking, generational differences and is also a recognized expert in the psychology of technology. Dr. Rosen has written five books on this topic, including Eye Disorder, Understanding Our Obsession with Technology and Overcoming Its Hold on Us, and Rewired, Understanding the Eye Generation and the Way They Learn. Larry also writes a technology column for the newspaper, The National Psychologist, and he's also a regular blogger for the magazine, Psychology Today. In this episode, we talk about the psychological impacts of screen-mediated communication, the strategies that people can take to improve their online communication, and ways that we can maintain our mental and relationship health whilst being with our digital devices and services. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Larry Rosen. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So, um, so Larry, I was wondering if you can tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. What's your origin story and how did you get to be involved in the psychology of technology? I am trained as a research psychologist. And when I started doing my research back in the 19, early 1980s, I was very struck that, that as computers came into our, into our academic world, they came in as these huge machines behind closed doors that were kept cold with with men with white coats and pocket protectors and pencils sticking out. And they were very mysterious. And I started integrating computers, the big computers, into some of the classes I taught and realized that the students were scared to death of them. Rightfully so, probably, because they were behind closed doors. They were mysterious. And we started studying something called computer phobia way back when. 
interestingly enough, that kind of rapidly morphed into, as we got more technology, morphed into technophobia. And then I think the phobia part kind of left. I wrote a book back in the 90s called Techno Stress. We thought that maybe it turned into sort of a stressor. And in fact, as we've seen, it really has turned into an object of obsession. Um, we carry around with us all day and for many of us all night long a device that is exceedingly powerful. It contains everything that matters in our life. It contains all of our connections, all of our contacts, as they say, all of our news, all of our photos, all of our music. It's, it's though we morphed every single Internet-enabled device into one, made it really tiny, put it in our pocket. And to me, what's fascinating is it's really become an object of obsession. We really can't keep our hands off of it. And for the last about 10 years, we've been doing research on the psychology of technology, trying to discover what it is that makes us constantly be connected to this device. We've done studies on, on how it impacts our sleep, on how it impacts our, our ability to multitask, uh, how it impacts our mental health, our physical health. And we're starting to get to the point where we're getting a sense of what this, this great device, which I love, is doing to us. It's really fascinating how in the 1980s, these devices, because they were huge back then, personal computers were enormous, and they came from the huge mainframe computers, and they were seen as objects of, you know, phobia, computer phobia, you were saying, to... No, not 30 years later, they're objects of obsession, the complete change from, you know, from stress to obsession. Right. And I think it's interesting because I think that the obsession is actually stress. Uh, so we're starting to, to look at interesting research coming out all over the world. And actually, um, it used to be centered in America, but now I would say even more research is coming out of, of Europe, coming out of Asia, all showing pretty much the same thing, that what we are seeing, what is happening, is that, that people are garnering anxiety. They are just feeling anxious. And the feeling of anxiety is enough to force their hand down to their pocket to grab that device to try to take care of their anxiety. What we think is a good portion of the anxiety comes from the fact that most of what goes on with that device, with our smartphone, it has to do with communication. And what we have kind of adopted as a strategy is that when somebody communicates with us, we feel compelled, and I use that word like this, the C of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, we feel compelled to grab the device and respond immediately. Nobody forced us to respond immediately, but if you watch people, they get a text message no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, no matter who they're talking to, even to the extent of people in bed having sex, they will respond to a text message. And it's, it's become this sort of slow transition over time the one thing I think is very compelling about this obsession that we have is this phenomenon called phantom pocket vibration syndrome. And it's very interesting to me. If five, seven years ago, if I felt a tingling just below my pocket of my blue jeans, I would have reached down and scratched an obvious itch. That exact same 
feeling, those exact same neurons firing, now no longer feels like an itch. It feels like a vibration from my phone. Even if my phone's not in my pocket, by the way. If my phone's in my hand, if my phone's on my desk, I still pat my pocket because I'm pretty sure I just got a text or a notification or an alert or something. So it, it has really crept up on us slowly. Um, one of the observations that I make a lot is watching people walk around with their devices. And even just a few short years ago, people had holsters, they put them in their pocket, women put it in their purse. Now what you see is people primarily carrying them in their hand. And when we ask them just anecdotally, why are you doing that? Their answer is, I want to be sure that I don't miss a notification, a buzz, a vibration, an alert. This is... Interestingly, to kind of go back to what you were saying about this this immediacy of response that we've suddenly developed, it seems that our our etiquette in term in, you know in terms of the way that we interact now with in our digitized society, it seems to be polite or impolite rather to have a delay on your response. So the it's almost like the the communication devices that we have demand a response and even from the organizations that we interact with say like amazon or whatever you know we expect these organizations to respond quickly and i think we expect that from our personal and maybe professional relationships i do believe that we worked our way slowly to that point um i I like to joke being a psychologist i like to joke that we're all acting a little bit like pavlov's dogs and salivating And I think what we're salivating about is that these devices um, might bring us a little bit of pleasure, but in general, I think they bring along a bit of anxiety. Um, I think that, that the anxiety is exactly about what you just said, which is feeling like if you don't respond quickly enough, it's going to mean something. What it means, I don't know. Um, people tell me it means that They think the person at the other end might be angry at them if they don't respond immediately. It means that the other person might not forgive them. It means that the other person will continue to text them or message them until they do respond. For whatever reason, we have kind of worked our way into this bad habit. And and I know I'm just as bad at this. Um, If you send me an email, I will respond very quickly. It's the one, my poison, being, being of the baby boomer generation, I grew up without any of this, and the first thing was email, and email's kind of stuck with me. But I find that that dribbles over into other things. When I get a text message, I typically will respond quickly, particularly if it's from somebody that I've been texting back and forth, and they're used to my response. And I've noticed if I get, I have four kids, and ranging from mid-20s to 40, and I've noticed that if they text me and I don't respond, they text back quickly, are you okay? Everything okay? Or something like that. Uh, I've learned which of my kids will wait to text me back, which of my kids will text back immediately. Uh, I've kind of learned their style. And we all have our our own style, but most of it is based, I believe, around this sort of concept of not being willing to respond quickly enough to the other person's satisfaction. I'm interested in that. I mean, you, you just um, kind of mentioned yourself as um, as a baby boomer. And so you've grown up with this and I think your perspective as well like your professional and academic perspective having looked at this through a clinical lens 
I'm really interested to know whether you're an optimist in terms of the way that we're going, not so much with the technology, but our digitized society. Are you optimistic for the way that we're going or are you somewhat pessimistic? You know, I've, I've watched technologies come in and take effect and either stay or go. And what I've noticed is over the years, and this is probably, I guess I've been studying this for the last 30 or more years, that technology somehow acts a little like a pendulum. And it starts slowly, builds up speed, and then takes off. And then as the pendulum sort of swings heavily to the side that we're seeing now, this sort of overuse of our technology, it then starts to swing back. Interestingly enough, in the case of, of the smartphone, which I think is the major game changer of the last decade, I don't see it swinging back yet. I just don't. So I think we're not there yet. We haven't gotten to the point where we sort of restart to realize our folly. And I think it's going to take more. Uh, I think it's going to take more people getting into major accidents when they text and drive. I think it's going to take more of people getting into serious accidents when they're texting, walking across the street, and they stumble into traffic, um, which happens. I think it's going to take more people complaining that their spouse doesn't pay attention to them because they're always on their phone playing words with friends or whatever. I, I do think it's going to take more, but I'm an optimist about technology. I've grown up with this technology. I am a, a techno geek. If you see me now, I'm standing on my treadmill desk. I'm not walking because I would be out of breath. I'm looking at my laptop, but connected to me, I have two external monitors, and they are both filled with stuff for me to look at. Um, I have a phone next to me. I have my iPad next to me that I will use to watch a baseball game in a little bit. Um, so, so I'm full of technology, and I believe in it. I really believe that technology has made our life infinitely easier. So many things that, that I would have struggled to do just a few short years ago that I can do effortlessly now. And yet I do see that the more we have connected with it, the more problems that have come up. And that concerns me, particularly as a psychologist. I've seen the, the research on the negative impact on psychiatric disorders. I've seen the, the impact on our physical health, on our emotional health, on our sleep particularly. That very much concerns me. And I, I see that this is really taking control of us. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we go, ah, we better take back control. It's our turn now, not the phone's turn. Um. But in, in one of your books, um, your latest book, Eye Disorders, um, you wrote the basic main thesis of it is that um, digital technologies have the effect of emphasizing the eye in everyday communications, um, that it can make us appear as if we have psychiatric disorders such as narcissistic personality disorders. Um, so I was wondering if your research, your current research is showing that we are suffering an overall lack of empathy as a result of our screen-mediated communications? You know, that's a very interesting question. We just published an article on, on what we call virtual empathy. And um, it, it, was, it was an interesting study to do. What we ended up doing was taking a measurement tool called a basic empathy scale. And we adapted it so that it referred to, instead of saying, I can understand my friend's feelings, I can understand my friend's feelings when they're online 
or very similar kinds of questions. What we found was is that, yes, there is something called virtual empathy. And, and I don't need to con- convince you of that because on your birthday, if you're on Facebook, for example, you get, if not dozens, maybe even hundreds of happy birthday wishes. And even though you know that everybody on your Facebook page was alerted that today is your birthday, you still feel good when you get those. You also know that if you put something on your Facebook page saying you had a bummer of a day, that you will get some of your Facebook friends commenting, oh, I'm sorry, is there anything I can do? Give me a call, whatever, let's go out, let's go play, whatever, whatever will make it feel better. So uh, there is this thing called virtual empathy. But what we did is we looked at it in relation to feeling supported feeling like you got good support. And what we found was is that real empathy, getting a, I call it getting a hug in the real world, feeling a real true face-to-face hug actually makes you feel six times more supported than if you got that hug in the virtual world. What that means to me is that perhaps there's an equation, six virtual hugs equal one real hug. I mean, I know that's kind of simplistic, and that's really reducing research to a a level that it's probably not appropriate, but that's really the way we see it, is that it takes more good feelings online to make you feel the same as getting a real hug from someone. I think the problem is is that, that we're doing a lot of what we're doing behind a glass screen, and we are not seeing people at the other end of the screen unless we're doing Skyping or video conferencing with them, and even then... You're only seeing a part of a person. You're not really getting the full body. You're not getting their all of their their nonverbal communication cues. And what's happening is we're losing our ability to feel other people's emotions. There was a fascinating study done um, by Yalda Uhls at UCLA. Kids, kids nowadays in about fifth grade, which makes them, I think, about 10 years old in the States, um, often go to an outdoor science camp. And they usually go up to this camp in lieu of going to school for a week. What she did is before a group of kids went to camp, she gave them pictures of people's faces from their eyebrows down to just below their mouth, showing different facial expressions of emotions. And she asked them, identify the emotion that person is demonstrating. And she did some other, she did some video versions of that. And she also gave it to a group of students who weren't going to go to camp for another week. When the students came back from camp after a week being in the mountains with no screen time whatsoever, they were not allowed to bring phones, no iPads, no nothing, they were better able to identify emotions from just the pictures or the videos than they were before they went. Five days. That's pretty powerful. So then the question is, what are we losing? What are we missing out on? And what we're missing out on is a lot of those nonverbal cues that we don't get when we're behind a screen. And since we are doing so much more behind screens right now, that's concerning because now I have a generation of, of preteens and teenagers starting to grow into young adults who haven't had the same kind of experiences in relating to other people face to face. That's, I mean, the ability to form emotional connections through a digital medium, it's 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 fascinating listening to the findings that you know one real world hug is you know kind of six times more powerful as a virtual um, um, hug if you like but I'm really interested in do you believe that we'll ever be able to form eventually the emotional 
connections that we're able to in real life in the virtual world? Or do you think it will be sort of an amalgamation of the two that will end up using the virtual as a tool to strengthen our real world emotional connections? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think right now we're at the point where if you ask young people, they're using the virtual world to firm up their real world connections. Most of their virtual people they communicate with are their friends in real life. It's uh, not true that they make a lot of these connections in the virtual world with people they're never going to meet or never have met and don't even know. The vast majority of them are their real friends. And so I do think as a connective tool, it's very good. I think that knowing you could text your friend you know, at, at midnight and get a text back is very meaningful. That means your friend cares. At least that's one of the things that you might think is that your friend cares enough to respond back. Or knowing that there's always somebody there online that you can talk to is important. One of our studies we found, by the way, that, that for with college students, that what best predicted lack of depressive symptoms was having more Facebook friends plus spending more time on the phone. So if you have more Facebook friends and you had more time that you spent talking to people on the actual telephone, that predicted fewer symptoms of both mild depression and major depression, which I think is very interesting. It suggests that it can that these virtual friends these or our real friends in a virtual world are giving us the support that we might need. How this is going to maneuver itself is an interesting question because we are seeing more and more um, kids being um, spending more time virtually than they are real. And so I do wonder in the future, can you have a complete virtual relationship? And might that relationship actually be as good as a real world relationship if it ends up being virtual but with all of the available cues? So I'm almost thinking uh, like the Star Trek beam me up kind of thing, the hologram. If I could see you holographically while we were chatting, would I notice your nonverbal cues? Would it be clear enough that you're feeling happy about what I said, not happy about what I say? Um, you're thinking of something totally different. You're doing something totally different while we're talking. It, it might, I think, enhance those relationships, being able to add all those cues into it. But I think we're a little ways away from that still. But, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy that I get to study this because I can see over the next five to seven years a quantum change in how we interact with the world. A lot more of it's going to be virtual, and I think a lot more of it's going to be virtual and combine visual and auditory together. So we're in a virtual world, but instead of typing, we're going to be talking a lot more. I think when you see these kind of technologies like Snapchat take over, Vine, some of these video technologies, I think it's, it's an acknowledgement that we do want to see the person. We do want that physical being and the more we have the physical and then the virtual together, I think the better off we're going to be in the future. Um, part, I mean, you have a very extensive um, current research list. Um, and I want to talk to you about all of it. But um, one, of the, um, one of the most fascinating elements of it was the work that you're actually conducting on focus and attention. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that and why focus and attention appear to decrease when we enter into digital environments? Well, focus and attention 
has been a sort of pet peeve of mine since um, I've started teaching 40 years ago. And the one thing I've noticed, um, particularly over the last few years, I, I teach a class called The Global Impact of Technology. And all we talk about is this research on the impact of technology and how it impacts people in the world. And I'm, I'm of the mind set that I can't force my students to do anything in class. I can't even force them to be there. And I certainly can't force them in a class of 450 plus to not text. So I tell them they can freely text. But what I tell them is, here's the research that shows that you can't do it. Uh, and the research is pretty convincing. It's been done in schools. It's been done in homes. It's been done in restaurants. It's been done in movie theaters. It's been done in the workplace. It's been done everywhere you can imagine. Our attention span before getting distracted is about three to five minutes. That's it. We did one study where we went out and watched school students all the way ranging from preteens up to college students study. And they knew we were watching them. We were watching over their shoulder. The instructions were, we want you to study something important. And then every minute, we had a clipboard and we marked down whether they were studying what they said they were going to be studying. If they weren't, were they using technology? Did they get interrupted? Did they get distracted? What distracted them? And it turned out that the most distracting things, the ones that pulled them away from being able to focus, were two things, social media and text messages. And again, very communication-based, and again, such a huge draw that they had their attention pulled away, yanked away from something exceedingly important to something else. And then the research shows that often it takes up to about 20 or more minutes to get back to what you're doing. And the research also shows from other labs around the world that, yes, you can do just as good a job if you keep switching your attention from what you're doing to something else and back again and back again. It's going to take you longer, and it's going to add more stress to your life. And so we've got our students who now, at least in America, are sitting on the bed with their laptop, with their iPad, with their phone, studying, theoretically, and finding that they have to study what, one, two in the morning because they've constantly interrupted themselves. They've made themselves have to go back, remember where they were before they got interrupted, and constantly, constantly, constantly getting distracted. Um, interestingly enough, the next book I'm writing that's going to come out in 2016 is called The Distracted Mind. And we're writing it from the dual perspective. I'm writing with a neuroscientist. And we're writing it from the dual perspective of what happens in your brain and what happens in your psyche. And both of us will be offering suggestions at the end. How can you change your brain and how can you change your psych psychology or your behavior? And hopefully people will get the idea that, that we are constantly distracted and we can't help ourselves anymore. And it's not good for us. It's not good for learning. It's not good for our relationships. I think this is the next thing that I was going to come on to. I mean, just for yourself, having seen technological and social development um, in tandem over time, is our ability to focus and pay attention to something going to be more important in the future? Or will we just adapt to being able to divide our attention amongst different stimuli? You know, the research is really very clear on this, and it's the research that's been done for decades. We cannot divide our attention. We can't. As long as the tasks are even anything but automatic, we can't divide our attention, which is why we can't text and drive, which is why we can't walk and talk very well, 
we fall into things. We can't certainly can't text while we're walking because we bump into walls, people, telephone poles, whatever. Um, we can't. My my real concern about this is that the more we keep opting to self-distract, the less we are going to be able to think clearly. And what I mean is that if you and I had a conversation, say, about distraction, and all of a sudden in the middle of what I was saying, you looked down at your phone and started texting back somebody and then came back to me with your head up, you would have, even though you would hear my voice, you would have missed what I was saying. Your brain would not be putting together what I said with what I said before you got distracted. And so you would probably have to ask a bunch more questions to get back to where you were before. That's not good. That's just not good. And from what we know about learning and how we we learn and retain information, it requires, in many cases, um, deeper processing than we can afford to give in a distracted world. And it's interesting how attention and focus are also, I think, very strongly linked to empathy. Now, if, if, I'm, if I'm completely distracted when you and I are talking, um, it doesn't do much to foster empathy between, between us or if I'm having a conversation with someone else or a professional person like, like a medical doctor, you know, I wouldn't want to tell that person any more about me if I know that they're, they're distracted. So even with regards to perhaps virtual empathy, focus and attention the ability to focus and to apply attention is very important, I would imagine. I think attention is probably one of the most critical things in our world right now. Mm. And I think it's, it's critical because we're starting to notice the lack of attention. We're starting to notice that it, at the dinner table, everybody's got their phone out. Um, we're starting to notice that a beep is very distracting. We're starting to notice that when our phone rings or somebody else's phone rings, we immediately grab our phone. Um, as though it's the most important thing in the world. And if, if I'm with you face-to-face and I am not the most important thing in your sphere at that moment, then why would I ever want to ask you for empathy? Why would I want to share with you? Why would I, why would I want to have a relationship with someone who can't just pay attention to me? And what, what's interesting is we're starting to see this affect um, relationships in general, but marriages in particular. We're starting to see uh, scant research, but it's coming out, showing that, that one of the major causes of disharmony in relationships is the other one person or even both being overly involved in the virtual world, um, whether that be a virtual gaming world like a lot of people get sucked into or a social media world. Lord knows we have so many social media sites now and we can't even count them. And... And so I think that we're going to start to see a real big impact on our relationships, family relationships, parents not feeling they're connecting with their kids because their kids are always connected. Um, Parents who swear to me the only way they can get their kids' attention is to text them because they can't talk to them because even if they're there physically and they're not looking at their phone, they're thinking about their phone. They're thinking about checking Facebook. They're thinking about Instagram. They're thinking about whatever just came up the moment before. And so I think that we are starting to see this this kind of global impact. I just hope that we're going to be able to recognize it and rather than throw out the baby with the bathwater, take the good parts of the technology and just dial back a little bit in our obsession with it. Do you see um, 
Larry, that there's maybe something to be concerned about when children are growing up with technologies as that are addictive, you know, that, you know, when children haven't learned, um, when their brains are still forming and they're still learning what attention and what focus is and how to actually master that skill. Do you see that there's a, there's a danger in that in children that have only known life within um, digitized societies? Yes, I do. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And one of the things that I do a lot is spend time talking to parent groups about this because I think it comes back to parenting. It all comes back to attention and parenting. I think that what has happened, and, and I remember this when my, my younger kids who are in their 20s now were growing up, that you know I was well into my, my professional life and writing books and things, and, and I had this sort of feeling that everything was great when my kids were in the other room and quiet. Um, and it turned out that wasn't the case. They were getting into things they shouldn't have gotten into. They were getting into trouble. But I never noticed because they were quiet in the other room. And they weren't bothering me. And I think a lot of parents have abdicated their parenting responsibility to technology. And I think that's pretty unhealthy. I think that parents have to monitor all their kids' technologies. I mean, when I talk to parents, I say the first, first and foremost thing is your kids, until they've proven themselves, should not be able to use any technology in their bedroom. It has to be out in a public area. And when they say, well, what about their phone? They carry it with them. Then you keep their phone on the kitchen table. They need it. They come out and they do it. Um, that's very difficult for parents to do, partially because parents are connected to their own technology at the same time. Uh, I, I do think that it's important that parents, at least until they know their kids are healthy users of technology, that they monitor their kids' use, that they feel comfortable checking what's on their phone, what's what's on their computer, what video games they're playing. I mean, there, there are good and bad video games. They all keep the kids quiet, but they're good and bad video games. They're healthy and unhealthy get games. And um, we really need to take back control of our parenting. Right now, we're letting our smartphones parent our kids, and that's not effective parenting. I think, and this kind of really goes nicely onto my next point in terms of your research, and you've been looking at generational perspectives of technology and its specific effects on different groups of people. Um, many people that I've spoken to, they don't believe that technology has an effect on generations um, and that perhaps it isn't even helpful to talk about groups of people in terms of generations and because the, because the designations themselves, Generation X, Generation Y, etc., they're blurring too quickly. Um, but I was, I'm really interested to know, what is the actual data and research showing you? Are there actual distinct generational attitudes and behaviors related to digital technologies? Well, um, first of all, I will tell you that in general, even though I've published research on generational differences, I agree that the, the lines are very blurred. Um, and for example, I'm a baby boomer born between 1946 and 1964. If I look at all the characteristics and research that baby boomers, I don't fit them. And in fact, a lot of baby boomers that I know don't fit them either. I'm much more like a member of the I generation, that I, we call it the I generation. Um, I, I think that they're blurred lines, but I think that 
that in general, at least looking at slices of people based on their age and their cultural concomitants of their upbringing, we do find differences in everything. I just published a, a chapter in a book that looked at about 3,500 people spread across what we would say multiple, multiple generations. So we looked at baby boomers. We looked at what people call Generation X, born between roughly 1965 and the late 1970s. We look at what we call the net generation, born in the 1980s, roughly. Again, who knows when they started, when they ended. Um, we look at the I generation, born in the 90s. And then we look at what we call Generation C for connected of people born in the new millennium. And even with those really rough, rough guidelines, we still find strong differences in attitudes, values, use of technology, um, pretty much everything, uh, every variable we looked at, we found strong differences. Now, interestingly enough, some of them were differences that changed what I would say linearly, meaning if you look from generation to generation, you find that there's a, a very linear straight line increase in the use, say, of the internet or the use of video games. But some of them weren't linear. Some of them were what I would call back and forth up and down, like a pendulum. So one generation used it a lot or had, had a value a lot. The next generation had a lower version of that value. The next generation had a higher. The next generation had a lower. Um, so, But there is a value in looking at this, but the lines have gotten very blurred because pretty much everybody now is technologically sophisticated. And depending upon how you use it. I know people who are baby boomers who use way more technology than people who are who are I generation or even um, what we call the generation C. But I think it's instructive to realize that some generations did grow up with a defining technology. The net generation grew up with the internet. We didn't name it, other people did. They grew up with the internet. It was a defining technology, as well as most of the culture that went on around them as they were growing up. The I generation grew up with all those little I devices, the iPhone, as well as every other I device, individualized, customized for you. Generation C grew up connected. They probably sent their first email message or their first text message when they were just little, 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 and they've been connected since then. So I think it's instructive to look at these rough gradations, but to remember that that maybe you don't fit exactly your chronological generation. Maybe you fit an earlier or a later one, but there still are some pretty strong differences to be aware of. So you've researched on the effects of emotional presence in electronic communication. Um, and I imagine that this has implications not only for families and the youth, but also for businesses whose jobs it is to create and maintain relationships. Um, what are the findings from this research? See, that's an interesting question because I think that was one of our big failures in research. We started to look at this concept of presence. And presence is, a, is an interesting concept because basically what it says is, do you feel like even if you're in a disparate location that you are connected, that it's as though you're there? It's as though you feel present, and it also goes along with a term called immersion, that you feel immersed. I was absolutely dead convinced that if we took somebody and sent him to the same movie, actually, we'll take two people, send one to a movie that's in regular movie format and another to an IMAX version of the same movie where you put the, glass, the goggles on and the glasses on and you get to see the 3D and everything, that that, fe that person would feel more presence, feel more immersion. 
In fact, it didn't work that way. Um, they didn't feel any more presence. They, what they felt was they got a headache. Um, and so it, it really didn't work. Uh, I do believe that presence is going to be important, and I do think we're seeing it reflected in a lot of ways. Companies, for example, are more likely to offer you a virtual chat with somebody than an electronic back-and-forth uh, text message or, or verbal chat. They want, they want to give you a feeling of somebody caring, somebody being there. Um, a lot of a lot of companies have have uh, sort of virtual assistants that they even give you a picture of them. The you know the the woman who's answering the phone, so you can see who you're talking to. Uh, I think it's all trying to take apart what it means to feel connected, and that's the bottom line: is that we can feel connected through touchscreen devices. We can feel connected through um, tapping keys, through typing, but we're never going to feel totally connected to someone unless we get the full experience. And that the full experience is what presence and immersion is, really. And so um, I still think that there's some hope in understanding this, but I don't know that anybody's done any good research on it yet because I think it's a very hard question to answer. And I think part of it is because people growing up with all this technology do feel presence when they're texting back and forth. They tell us they do. They feel like they're truly connected to the person that they're talking to, but they're not really talking and they're not really seeing and they're not really connected. Maybe they have a visual image of the person we think. And so they're feeling that visual image. But what if you've never seen the person? How can you have a visual image of them? You have one that you make up maybe. So we've tried to study things like online dating, for example, where there's a, a, um, sort of a, a connection electronically but not real until you actually meet someone and we've looked into that and what makes you connect um, it's very interesting um, and can I, can I, has anything have you found anything even semi-conclusive from say the online dating research? well interestingly enough we found with online dating that people make a lot of assumptions um, they, they take the written word and their brain goes nuts we did, we did one study where we, we simply gave students two emails from two different gentlemen to a woman and asked them, well, we asked them a lot of questions. But so, so we'd have Jim and Frank, and Jim would write an email that said, she actually, the person, the woman would write an email to Jim and say, hi, Jim, I saw your profile. Tell me a little bit about yourself, because that's how all these online dating things start anyway. And Jim would then write, and we had a standard two-paragraph response from Jim. And then Frank had exactly the same kind of response, but we varied seven major words. We took them from being something on the order. Jim might say, I really have a good job. Frank might say, I have a great job. Jim might say, I really like my life. Frank might say, I love my life. So both very positive or positive, but one more positive than the other. Then we gave them a bunch of, of adjectives and they said, which of these refer to Jim and Frank? Lo and behold, even changing only seven words, the one who had the, I love my job, I love my life, got all the good adjectives. The one who liked their life, who had a good life, who had a good job, got all the bad adjectives. And three quarters of the people, by the way, said that the girl who was writing should date the one with all the really exciting adjectives. 
So we tend to, I think what we do is we tend to make assumptions based on the written word. And I think this is, this is one of the problems that, that we've come across is the written word doesn't give you as much information as the spoken word. And the spoken word doesn't give you as much information as the spoken word face to face. And I think this, I mean, we're talking about online dating now, but I think this also has implications for things like, say, online bullying, uh, cyberbullying, where with, of, with the impacts of the written word um, and how people interpret that. I mean, one of the things that you've also talked about, in addition to presence, is um, context and the importance of people, the sender, trying to understand the context of the person they're sending the information to. We, we are really bad at context. We, we are bad at judging context. We are bad at judging context. And the problem is, is that when we take just the written word, um, we make assumptions. And I hate to say this, but as human beings, we are really lousy assumers because we tend to assume based on what we want the person to be, not what the person truly is. So if we want the person to be wonderful then we are going to make assumptions that their words prove to us that they're wonderful. That's often not right. And what happens, and I'm glad you brought up bullying, because bullying's an interesting one, because um, just like online dating, online bullying is very similar. You're exchanging messages from a distance through a glass screen where you can't see the person and the person can't see you. And so any context that's being built up is in both of your heads. And the context is based on the written word. So once those written words start flying back and forth, the bullier is going to continue based on the assumption that they're getting to the person. And the person being bullied is going to feel cowed based on the assumption that they're being beaten up emotionally. And it's, it's a very cyclical kind of thing. But it's, by the way, the same thing operates... On the other hand, in virtual empathy, just like we talked about earlier, because once you do get the person's context that they need help, that they're calling out for help, then help, then you've got the right context. But the problem is, is that oftentimes figuring out the context that somebody lives in just by their typed words is very difficult. Um, you text somebody and they don't text back and your initial assumption is they must hate me. They're mad at me. Now, why didn't, why didn't he text back? Well, maybe they were in a meeting or driving a car or busy or their phone died or something. But we, make, we tend to make assumptions based on our individual needs rather than the context of both the other person and ourselves. And that's dangerous. It's, what's interesting to me is, and, and again, this is, I think, a very important thing to, to mention is even though my phone's turned over upside down, I forgot to turn it off. I usually turn it off when I do these. And what I notice, and, and we've seen this in research now, so I'm, I'm now an NF1 in a big study, um, I get a visceral response. When my phone beeps, I get a visceral response. And the response is a, probably a little shot of cortisol in my brain, which is a stress-based hormone, um, saying, I wonder who that is. Is it important? Is it something I should look at? And part of me wants to be present and stay in the context of talking with you and having a discussion. But part of my brain is preoccupied with who might have gotten in touch with me. 
and the temptation to turn my phone over is overwhelming. And I'm 65 years old, I should be able to control myself. Um, Think of a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old or a 30-year-old. They don't have that, that ability to do that. Again, it screams of Pavlov and his and his dog. I'm I'm a great reactor of like Pavlov's dogs. I I literally feel like I salivate when the message beeps, and I have to stop myself. I have to go. Why are you doing this? Why don't you just let it go? Take a look at it. One of the things I try to convince people to do is to learn to go without checking in so often. Learn not to react viscerally to those kind of beeps. Retrain yourself that that we have gone, gotten to the point where we're at very slowly. Kind of technology crept up on us really over the last five, seven, eight years since smartphones have become ubiquitous. By the way, 76% of the population has a smartphone. Um, that's pretty staggering. That means that they're carrying this device with them all the time. Um, it came on us slowly, and we have to slowly back ourselves out, not get rid of the technology because that's never going to happen. Technology is there to stay. It's beneficial. It's wonderful. It has great benefits for us. But we have to back ourselves out of the compulsive part of it, the obsessive part of it. So I have to practice. I have to practice myself. I have to say I'm not checking in on my phone until I'm done with speaking with you. Or I have to say I'm in the middle of writing a paragraph. I'm going to set my alarm for 20 minutes, and in 20 minutes I'll check my phone. Or it might be me saying to people, hey, look, I'm going to be really busy the next few days. I will check my phone once an hour and get back to you on the hour. Those, those are taking charge of yourself, taking control back, not letting the phone control you, you controlling your access to the phone. My last question for you um, is related to this and another part of your research, and it's that um, before I began speaking to experts about um, psychology, the psychology of technology on a regular basis. I used to be a very, very guilty sleeper with technology. And even now, it's difficult for me not to read my phone and my iPad or whatever before bed. Um, and you've clinically researched the effects of this. And is it as bad as the media reports are depicting? I think it's worse, actually. Um, I, I in we just finished a study and getting ready to submit it for publication. But um, a vast majority of the college students that we tested, and I've seen this done with kids too, with teenagers um, and even adults. But the the study showed that the vast majority of kids sleep with their phone close at hand, either on vibrate or on the ringer on all night long. That the vast majority wake, not the vast majority, but about half wake at least once, if not more, to check their phones in the middle of the night. And what we know about sleep is that sleep is absolutely critical for your physical health, we know that, for your emotional health, and for learning, and for your future physical health. One of the things that, that we know is that if you use technology in bed before you go to sleep, and it's all the technologies these days, with the exception of a few things, are LED-based technologies. They have light-emitting diodes. The light-emitting diode releases energy in the blue wave spectrum, blue like sky. Our brain interprets blue like sky as wake up, and it deposits, starts depositing cortisol into our brain. Cortisol is a stress hormone, but in small batches, 
it's the kind of hormone, the neurotransmitter, that awakens us, mm-hmm. that wakes us up. If we do not use our devices and we are in a room that is slowly darkening and, the, and obviously the light outside is darkening too, that does the opposite. Instead of releasing cortisol to wake us up, it releases melatonin to put us asleep. The vast majority of kids and even adults are using their LED devices right up till bedtime and then wondering why they have lousy sleep. Um, we just did a study where we found that that there are lots of predictors of a bad night's sleep, but the major predictors are using your phone more during the day, more hooked on your phone at night, using it at night, using it in the last hour before you go to sleep, all of those uses, waking up in the middle of the night. And what's worrisome to me is that when you couple this with the task switching, multitasking that we're doing during the day, which means we're going to have to stay up later to get the same amount of work done. Um, it doesn't bode well for us. And I am very concerned and, and I'm following um, both the Mayo Clinic and the National Sleep Foundation. National Sleep Foundation says no technology in the last hour before you go to sleep. An hour before, take your phone, take your iPad, move it, put it in another room, lock it in a drawer somewhere so you won't use it. Mayo Clinic says, okay, look, we understand people might need to watch TV on their iPad or whatever. Then keep it 14 inches away from your face and dim the brightness so that instead of getting the the blue LED light, what you're getting is the melatonin released. Um, We're just not seeing people do that. And so it is destroying the sleep cycles. And sleep cycles are exceedingly important for learning. Um, One of the things that happens during sleep is what you learn during the day is practiced um, in your brain. And if you don't sleep well, it's not practiced. The other thing we know is that during your day, during the normal day, when your brain's functioning, it, it releases sort of byproducts of its work. There are little toxins that are in your brain. If you don't get a good night's sleep, those toxins don't get washed away. And so your brain is full of these little toxins, some of which, by the way, are beta amyloids. And beta amyloids are, are, are identified as being one of the major parts of Alzheimer's disease. So... Unless you're sleeping well, you're jeopardizing your learning, you're jeopardizing your memory, you're jeopardizing your physical health, you're jeopardizing your emotional health. And again, it's because we've gotten so enmeshed in all of this. It's interesting because um, in young young people's brains, they don't stop growing, I think, until they're 23 or 24. Well, um, the, the last part of... Uh, the last thing that happens in your development neurologically is that that your your neurons are wrapped with this fatty substance called myelin, and it's like the wrapping that goes around electrical cords, the rubber part that goes around electrical cord. It it's there to stream the signals from one neuron to the next, or from the group of neurons in your brain. The last area to get myelinated is the front part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, and it's exactly the part of your brain that makes decisions, that attends, that pays attention, that that solves problems, that works on problems, that governs impulsive behaviors, that governs um, multitasking, and it, it your brain, your prefrontal cortex is not myelinated. Many people think not until your mid to late twenties. And so you've got all these students and young adults running around with brains that are not functioning at peak performance anyway. And then you add in 
the negative impact of sleep, you add in the constant anxiety about checking in, and you've got a brain that's beset and besieged by the impacts of technology. Um, Larry, um, just before we go, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, you know, I think we've hit the major issues. Um, I, I, I think that the, the bottom line for me is that technology is amazing is an amazing gift. Um, we can do things technological right now that we could have never dreamed of doing even 10 years ago. And the problem is is that the gift is a gift that keeps giving and giving and giving and then taking and taking and taking. And I think we're at the stage right now where people are starting to be aware of the drain on them that the technology brings, the constant connection, the constant feeling like you have to check in all the time, the constant being on and and being available. And I think we need to take a step back. And I think people are starting to recognize that. I think the pendulum's starting to peak and swing back, that we're starting to recognize that maybe it isn't so good to be connected 24-7. Maybe we're feeling always sleepy. Maybe we're feeling always upset. Maybe we're feeling besieged. And, and what that means is we have to take back control. And I think right now we're letting what's in the device control us and I'm much more interested in us learning how to control our device usage. Not give it up because uh, I don't want to give up any of my stuff. And I don't think anybody should. I, I want to be able to ask Siri anytime I want any question I want. I, I want to be able to have Google available when I need it. I want to have email available. I want to be able to text my kids and find out how they're doing. I want to be able to look on Facebook and see what my grandkids are doing. I want this. But I also recognize that it's pretty darn overwhelming. And we've, we've let ourselves dig a hole, and it's time to dig out. Um, Larry, thank you so much for, for being with us today and sharing your wisdom and your, and your insights with us. Um, where can people find more of your work? Well, the easiest way, um, because I freely give out most everything that I have, is um, Dr. Larry Rosen, but the doctor is DR, drlarryrosen.com. Um, I have all my publications there. I have links there to, um, I think the best thing for people to read is I write a, a regular blog for the magazine Psychology Today. And I put my thoughts out on all the things we talked about in separate posts. I, I don't write often, but I try to write about things that are happening in our world that we should be aware of. And people can check that out. That's always, I think, current and up to date. Um, and uh, I, I hope that uh, people will go out and buy eye disorder because I think it talks a lot about this obsession that we have with our technology and wait patiently for the next book, The Distracted Mind, to learn why we get so darn distracted and what we can do about it. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Larry Rosen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate your time and I'll definitely put links to everything you've mentioned in the show notes. Thank you very much. It's been a very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Larry Rosen. We all need to think more profoundly about the ways that we use technology and the work that Larry's currently doing in this field is really, really important. If any of the points that were made in the show resonated with you, then I'll link to them in the show notes and you can find those on digitalmindfulness.net. If you want to learn more about how to live well with technology, then check out our courses on Finding Your Digital Voice or Ending Digital Distraction, How to Cultivate Attention in the Digital Age. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day and I look forward to being with you next week. Thank you.